Brian Quincy Newcomb is a pastor, a rock music critic whose works appeared in Billboard, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and a number of other places. He also serves as pastor of David's United Church of Christ. And welcome, Brian. How are you? It's good to be with you. Good. Um, How long have you been writing about music? Um, I guess I started writing for a fanzine while I was in seminary in uh, the earliest of 80s, 80, 80, 81, right in there. And uh, in 84, I was in Chicago, and uh, so I pitched a story to CCM Magazine for uh, Res Band, who had a brand new record, and I was like just, you know, about 30 blocks from where they uh, lived, so it was easy to uh, slide over there and do a, a story. Uh, so I started writing for CCM in the, in the very earliest of 80s, and um, in 85 or 86, when I was in St. Louis and settled into a pastoral role, I pitched some stuff to uh, the Riverfront Times and uh, started writing uh, mainstream things for them off and on. Uh, so I wrote between the RFT and the uh, Post-Dispatch in St. Louis for about 20 years. Uh, about 2005, print kind of died. So right. uh, I've been kind of uh, playing around with a variety of Internet options. But, yeah, I've been writing about music since the, uh, the early 80s. Well, that's interesting. So you were over near North Malden in Chicago where Japuza is and all that stuff. Yeah, I was in Irving Park. I was serving, okay. During my seminary, I did a, uh, a one-year internship at uh, Irving Park Free Methodist Church. And, um, and while I was there, I made a lot of music contacts with friends. And, and I knew Japuza was just, uh, just down over in, in Uptown. And, uh, yeah, I, I had a friend who was already writing for CCM, so... He uh, told them I was there and that there was a new Japuza record coming out. I can't remember which one it was. It might have been um, the one about Mommy or Daddy Don't Love Me Anymore or yeah, something Mommy like that. Yeah, Mommy Don't Love Daddy Anymore. It, was, trying, it is hard to remember. Those kind of run together. Did you go to the yeah, early was, Cornerstone festivals? Were you at, oh, yeah. Yeah. By 80, I think 84 was the first year yep. the festival happened. And I attended for the first 10 years. I attended through 94. I went every uh, other year, and I think weren't you involved in the recorded Christian music news group uh, at some point? Did well, you, did, I did, did some you ever, work with. Go ahead. I was just going to say they had that annual barbecue, recorded Christian music, whatever, back on the old news groups. They used to have that barbecue at Cornerstone Festival every year, and I was just wondering uh, if we. No, I doubt. I doubt that I attended that. Okay. I I was. Let's see. For eight years, I edited the Harvest Rock Syndicate. Right. Uh, which was an alternative uh, rock magazine that was kind of um, uh, an attempt to uh, get it. We were we were particularly frustrated with where CCM and other publications were headed. They'd become um, pretty comfortable promoting you know the same artists over and over again, and we felt like the rock and alternative artists were getting ignored. So I um, I worked together with a team, and we created the fanzine that we were able to run for about eight years before we sold it to some folk in the, in Nashville. But, uh, while I was doing that, um, 
I guess for those eight years, I attended uh, CCM, I mean, Cornerstone, you know, festival every year. And then uh, I also went to GMA and uh, Nashville pretty often during those years. Um, so I was involved in the industry as much as you can be and, and still be outside of it. <laughs> well, what, what happened to CCM? I mean, when you, we talk about Cornerstone Festival, especially those first 10 years, there was just about every flavor of creative art and music imaginable. And now it seems like most everything seems like it has come from a pre-programmed uh, garage band template or something. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, it has a lot to do with uh, who ran the industry and then and then um, the publication itself. I mean, when I was writing for it, I was writing for Tom Granger, who was uh, an editor for a long time with that magazine and who was very engaged in, cre- in the creative end of, of music. And, um, and with different editors, uh, there were different emphases for that magazine uh, – had a, a phase when it wanted to be people instead of Rolling Stone. And, and so, you know, I had a couple of interviews where I would go talk to an artist about their music and I'd come back and the editor would be all frustrated because he wanted a story about their family life. Um, and I'm like, really? <laughs> mm. I think people care more about, you know, anyway. So, um, and then on the industry side, you know, I mean, the, the commercial interest of distributors always have a more conservative uh, artistic bias than uh, than a lot of times the fan base because uh, you know they're trying to they're trying to figure out how to sell the most products, how to sell the most uh, units, and um, and so they try to work a formula. You know, they want something that sounds like this or does like that, so they can they can um, you know just make money. And and so a lot of the most creative and aggressive and interesting artists were um, either had a hard time fitting into that uh, box or when they did fit into the box, it became very painful for them because uh, they were trying to be something they really weren't. Um, So artistically, you know, it was a, it was a challenging fit. um, uh, What you have to remember is that most of the music companies uh, in that industry in the contemporary Christian end of the industry are really tied into radio and, and the largest uh, listenership for Christian radio is, is uh, housewives in their thirties and forties. And so, you know, when you start imagining what the average housewife in her thirties and forties is listening to, um, you're not going to get a lot of aggressive (laughs) alternative rock uh, play on that station. And, uh, and, and, and that was really, you know, that's the most, um, powerful way to get your music heard is through radio. And there just rarely, rarely was the kind of, uh, support, uh, for the kind of music that, um, that I'm into and that creative artists in the Christian industry were making. So, um, yeah, it's just a, it's a, it was a hard boundary to break through, to be, uh, commercially viable. And, and when there were, you know, alternative festivals like Cornerstone, that was your, that was the primary outlet for those artists to kind of get a chance to get heard by a, a reasonable, uh, listenership. Um, but then all again, that all kind of faded and, uh, became less, less economically uh, sustainable. And, uh, I think then just the natural flow of the industry just became more and more conservative. And, and that's where that, you know, all that pile of music that's described as worship music, uh, comes from, uh, frankly, uh, music I'm not a fan of. 
So yeah, I, I want to get back to that. I'm glad you mentioned that. Who were some of the artists you remember talking to then that were just frustrated by the the way things were drifting? I mean, there's some very talented people out there. Well, you know, I mean, back in the day, of course, um, my favorites were Daniel Amos and uh, Adam again, the guys in the choir, the guys in the 77s and uh, that whole exit, exit records phenomenon out of Sacramento that was included Vector and Charlie Peacock and those guys back in the early days. Right. Um, a lot of those were, you know, very, very creative artists. And uh, I think many of them had a vision of, uh, you know, mainstream distribution so uh they were trying to get you know recognized by the mainstream labels and uh unfortunately when you've made your first record or two for a christian label it's really hard to break out it it becomes it seems like the expressing faith in music now has become uh either uh you're on the outside or you you are forced into and and i'm glad you mentioned the worship music thing you you're old enough and I am too to remember the earliest stuff was coming out of the old Maranatha chapel was called worship music that are choruses now that even some of the you know regular churches sing but now there's there seems to be a um and I mean it's cliche and people say it all the time but it really does sort of have you get a uh, guitar riff from you too or, or try to sound like that and you try to work some repetitive chorus into it and it's uh Jesus is my girlfriend kind of lyrics um right right exactly seven seven words repeated 11 times yeah, yeah I've, i'm not 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 a not a fan actually uh for a variety of reasons i mean it's it's not just it's not just that I don't like it musically and artistically, a lot of times theologically and, uh, and historically it's, it's, it's troublesome music for me. And it's, um, uh, it's paper thin. It's uh, a very shallow, um, emotive and often manipulative, uh, musical format. And, uh, for those of us who uh, come from a deeper, more historic faith tradition, you know, there's, there's just not enough substance there to make it feel, like real worship music, I'd I'd rather sing, you know, three hundred year old hymns and sing some of the crap that I've heard on uh, worship radio stations. But uh, that's just me. I mean, I'm, I suppose everybody has their own taste. It's just, I think it's just disturbing that um, a lot of the music that's marketed out of the Christian music industry is 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 marketed as worship music and um, and uh, ideologically and even commercially, I have a hard time with that concept because. Uh, to me, worship music is church music, and church music is not something you charge for. Um, you know, I, 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 I always hated uh, in the in the late uh, '80s and '90s when I would go to concerts, and uh, you know, the average ticket price is fifteen or twenty bucks to get in, um, and then the Christian artist says, "Now we're going to worship," and I'm like, "No, every Sunday I go to worship. I, I worship in a church. I, I hear a sermon. I hear." A, uh, I hear music played by members of my congregation. Um, when I come to a concert, I want to be entertained. I want to be uh, engaged intellectually and artistically. Um, and I'm comfortable if, if, if God is present and, and I feel worshipful during the event. But I don't, I don't go to, you know, I don't pay to go to a concert for a, for a church experience. I have those every Sunday. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was kind of weird. It was counterproductive and, um, and I felt often it was emotionally manipulative, which is uh, which is equally troubling. But that's uh, that's I agree. my own frustration. I agree with you. And I remember going to I'm trying to remember who it was. It was Quicksilver or somebody in San Luis Obispo. They charged tickets to get in and then passed a bucket. 
They only charged you for a ticket. Yeah. They passed a bucket around to ask for more money. And that, because know, they thought it was church, right? Yeah, yeah, they thought it was church, and they wanted more money out of it. But you mentioned, that, you know, there were a couple of artists who, in different ways, I mean, you, you remember back, you know, Keith Green decided he wasn't going to charge anymore uh, for his records and stuff. And uh, well, but, but but part of that, you know, and I and I don't mean to be, you know, I don't mean to be cynical here, but I think I think um, you know when a lot of those artists uh, were busy passing the bucket instead of charging a ticket price, right? The, the reality is they probably made more money uh, in the offering than they were going to make uh, from the ticket price. Right. Um, I mean, I don't mean to be, you know, uh, evil of, of, of heart, you know, with regard to Keith Green, you know, sure. who some people think of as a saint or, or second chapter of Acts, who when they toured, mm-hmm. they always passed a bucket. But I mean, I, when I saw, when I saw, uh, when I saw second chapter of Acts, I heard, uh, 90 minutes of preaching and, and, uh, the offering itself took over 25 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for 90, you know, it, it was a three hour event. You heard 90 minutes of preaching and 90 minutes of music. Well, frankly, at that point, you know, <laughs> shoot me, I'm dead. Oh, you, you know, I um, used to say that, uh, Buck thought he was a member of the second chapter. <laughs> well, uh, you, you hand that guy a microphone and he's going to act like he's, he's, uh, he's, uh, he was an authority uh, speaking for God, and 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 again, you know, if I want to hear a good sermon, you know, I'll, I'll find a pastor who uh, is compelling, and you know, those people are preaching week after week to congregations in a knowable way. I this uh, floating revivalist evangelism thing um, is a troublesome model, in my opinion, and uh, and when it got attached to the music, it it was. Um, it was painful for me because I, I, you know, if I'm going to go see a band perform, I want to see the band perform. I, you know, if they want to share their witness or their uh, inspiration for writing a song, I, I'm I'm game to hear a few stories during the, the and I want to be entertained. You know, I'm I'm, I'm open minded, but you know, if you're talking a lot more than you're playing, um, well, I have a problem with that. You know, Dylan, so. I think he was famous for saying, "Nobody pays to hear me talk." You know. Exactly, and uh, that's why. Yeah, and and when he did talk, you knew exactly why you weren't paying him to talk. <laughs> <laughs> he was always much better. And, and there were, and there not were that people loved his voice, but I, that right. people preferred him singing. That's yeah. right. That's well, right. there were people even like you were saying. I don't think you were you were speaking out of turn because you know even and as squirrely as this guy was in a lot of ways, but Larry Norman said that very same thing you said is. You know, I, I'm performing a concert. I'm charging for tickets. I'm not taking up a love offering. You know, there's 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 a problem with that. You know, you know what you're paying when you come well, see me. Well, I yeah, and I think I think it's I think it's one of the challenges of uh, of the dichotomy between whether you're a, a a musician who's who's performing artistic music of value that people will pay to hear, or whether you're a traveling minister. That's a different thing altogether. You know, I mean. And, and, and when those two, and, and then in the Christian music industry, those things have been wrapped around each other in kind of a, an awkward way. And, um, and I think that's one of the reasons that industry struggles, uh, for clarity of vision and purpose. Uh, and, and often, um, you see so many, um, train wrecks in terms of people's personal lives, you know, coming apart, uh, because they've been trying to do too many. I mean, they've just been stretching themselves to try to 
be all things to all people. And, and while that, <laughs> there's a biblical precedent for trying to do that, uh, it, it really does ultimately end up lacking authenticity, and, and, and rarely does it show a, a sense of direction and purpose that we come to aspire for, both in ministry and, and from our artists. Um, so yeah, I, I, the whole thing, um, uh, to get back to your original question about what happened to Christian music or what happened to CCM is that that whole paradigm, uh, was built on some, I think, very shaky, uh, foundations. Um, because ultimately you've got to sell records to, you know, to keep a record company going. And, um, as an artist, you've got to make a living. Um, you've got to, you've got to have product that people are purchasing and then you mix that up with the gospel, which is the, the good news of Christ shared freely with everyone. And, and by the way, you've got a, a formula for disaster. You know, you've got, you've got, um, uh, you're at cross purposes because, uh, the witness of the gospel should be free and, uh, and you're marketing a product. You're marketing a, an album. You're you're writing songs, trying to get airplay and sell um, and sell the artist as a uh, as a piece of merchandise. And uh, and those are those are difficult. Those are difficult boundaries to maintain, in my opinion. Right, and and there was that long period where every song had to have a a, a scripture reference after it to be accepted. Well, so, yeah. well, that's well. See, that's and that's yeah. see, that's what happened to the art. The art becomes, the art can't stand on its own. It it can't be. I wrote this song because I was inspired by whatever. It's it it always had to have some kind of a ministry context, and and you know and 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 what 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 lacked, I think, authenticity. At the heart of it was the was the this idea that every song had to be a uh, a miniature sermon, you know. Uh, um, every every song had to end with the kind of uh, victorious claim or to- tale of how um, Jesus came to the rescue. And and while you know I do believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I do uh, want to encourage people to follow. Uh, in the example of Christ, and to you know, honor the the message of peace and justice and love that comes through Jesus in the Gospels. Um, that's not what I always expect from art. Um, art should jar you. Art should awaken you. Art should uh, speak to the authentic human experience. And and to be clear, I mean that's what the Gospels do, and that's what a lot of the scriptures do. But um, in the contemporary Christian music industry context, when you're trying to sell records to uh, 40-year-old um, housewives who listen to Christian radio while, um, you know, while uh, doing the laundry, um, you end up um, emphasizing a way of thinking and a way of being that's kind of sweet and uh, pasteurized and, and formulized, and uh, uh, every song has, to happy, has a happy, cheery, kind of ending and um and let's be clear you know uh, um that's not always real life that's not always the whole of the human experience um if an artist you know is going through a difficult time in their life and writes songs reflective of the uh real challenges of daily life or if they look at the world and see how broken and painful it is for so many people and they respond by artistically describing what they see and hear and feel 
um, that's not always going to be cheerful and up-tempo and positive. You know, it's, it's not always going to fit a three-minute, um, uh, doesn't Jesus make you happy kind of uh, a modality, and yet that's what was being sold as Christian music. If you didn't have a uh, if you didn't have a reference to Jesus in it, if you didn't have a scriptural context, it wasn't viewed as valid religious art. And to me, that's, well, it's wrong and nonsensical, but um, but certainly that was the rule of the industry in that day and age. And we were talking about earlier, kind of turning it back into how it made its way into the church. Yeah, certainly the 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 richness of the the of hymns and, and now look there, we both know there were hymns with as much bad theology as some of the contemporary stuff but sure. there was there was so much variety and such a a rich diversity among the hymns that you're going to expect some of that the problem now and this is where it's confusing to me a little bit is you and I are both sort of I think we're we're we're, we're the same tribe when we start talking about. Uh, yeah, why is this such a? But if you look at the fastest growing churches in in the United States, probably eighty percent of them are. That's the formula they use for music. Well, sure, and and but see, I, I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure that the church should be uh, measured by size. I mean, I, I I I'm not convinced that that's the um, the criteria. Is that you have a big church? Um, I, I'm interested in a faithful church. I'm interested in a church that. Um, that uh, is meeting needs in its community. I'm interested in a church where um, they're embracing and welcoming and including people the way Jesus welcomed and included the outsider, uh, the way Jesus engaged um, the forces that be as a, as a, an advocate for, um, for those folk who were marginalized. I, I, you know, I, I want a church that's focused on Matthew 25. I want a church that takes seriously the Beatitudes Um so, you know, is that, is that a big church? Uh, maybe not. You know, maybe, maybe a successful, faithful church is a, a smaller community of faith that really is making a difference in its community. Um, a church with, a, you know, 4,000 uh, attendants on a weekend with a band and, a, and uh, you know, a big auditorium full of uh, concert lighting and whatever, um, that may be, the, that may be the, the commercial bright end of the industrial side of what church is about, but, um, is it, is it faithful? Is it, um, is it touching the lives of, uh, marginalized people in their community? Are, are, uh, poor people getting fed or are people being visited in prison? You know, the, the, the mandate of Jesus is to, to reach out beyond our comfortable circles and touch the needs of those folk around us. Um, and I'm not sure those big successful churches are necessarily modeling that kind of ministry. Now, maybe they are. Maybe in their day-to-day grinded-out uh, lives, a lot of these faithful Christian people are are really making a difference in the in the light of their in the life of their community. But um, you know, a, an impressive light show and a big band at a worship service isn't necessarily what I'm looking for when I'm thinking about church. Well, as a pastor, and you did your doctoral thesis on contemporary worship and those kind of things. What, what, I mean, how do you bring the best of what we're in the traditions and yet not, um, you know, flip a switch on people who were raised in it and really that just didn't ring their bell? Right, right. Well, well, what we did in my congregation when we were trying to do that, and when I was writing my thesis paper, it was about introducing contemporary worship into a mainline protestant uh format and um and what we thought what we focused on was what was authentic what felt real to us 
so you know if if we um if we listened to, to what was going on in the contemporary music world that seemed relevant and meaningful you know we would we would pick a few songs from a rich mullins or an amy grant um but we would also focus on artists like mark hurd and uh and uh we would uh, try to um lift up artists who were maybe marginally on the christian horizon but had things to say about faith uh we, we um, the band in the church I served for 10 years that did contemporary worship, um, did songs by T-Bone Burnett. They did songs by The Call. They did songs by U2. Um, and, they, and they didn't do them in a big, splashy way. They weren't a big rock band or anything. They were, you know, sometimes it was just a, an acoustic guitar, a piano, and a violin uh, with, with some nice voices on top. But um, what they tried to do is uh, present with integrity uh, these artful, beautiful songs, and um, and we use them in worship in much the same way that uh, the the choir and the organ prelude uh, functions in a traditional um, mainline Protestant service. Um, so, so it, you know, we didn't buy into the formula where you did praise choruses. In fact, you know, my congregation, you know, reacted pretty negatively to praise choruses because they seemed manipulative and kind of um, insisting that everybody get on the same emotional wavelength. And and realistically, that's just not doable. You've got people that come in there who are having a great week and they've had uh, wonderful, loving relationships to sustain them. And you've got other people who show up. And they may be going through a divorce or they may be at risk of losing their job. And, and they all arrive with their, you know, their full week's worth of experiences in, in their minds. Uh, and they want to come and be present in the community of faith, but they want to be honest and have integrity. And they don't want to be dragged through the emotional manipulations of trying to all be on the same page. And, uh, and that's why I like hymns because, you know, I mean, uh, you know, you play a, a, a hymn that's a, a lengthy uh, theological treatise in four verses. There may be only a few words on that hymn that kind of engage my experience, but but um, because the hymn is so rich and full of theological import, and maybe it tells a narrative about uh, you know a biblical story or something, there's a variety of places for a variety of individuals to connect at their own at their own speed. You know, for their own from their own experience. You answered some of this in, in what you just said, but what is it about music that seems to resonate in us? It can, it can give us comfort and hope in ways that most other, I know art in general can do that, but there's something very particular about music. I think that can do that. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's something very primal about, you know, the musical experience, um, you know, and, 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 uh, and I think that's the, that's the, the sustaining uh, beauty of uh, music. And that's why most of us, you know, have artists that we've followed for years and years and years. I mean, we, uh, we may still have favorite songs that, that are 30 and 40 years old. Um, and certainly some of the hymns are hundreds of years old and they've sustained the life of the, the, the Christian community uh, in that whole period of time uh, because of their, uh, ability to connect a melody can uh, grab your uh, heart and uh, mind and and uh, and allow I, I just kind of it opens one spirit when the melody and the the music connects uh, whether it, it's um, 
whether it's an acoustic guitar or a piano riff or some some rhythm that uh, is uh, you know funky down to your soul. I mean, there's uh, music has a way of getting inside of your being, and uh, and most of us have had enough experiences with music that we anticipate. Um, good things when we hear sounds that are familiar that uh, resonate with our inner being, and uh, yeah, I'm 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 a huge fan of music. I think I think music is uh, one of those resources for communication that uh, can't be used often enough. Right, and and, and you mentioned communication. It does it it cuts through a lot of uh, things people wouldn't listen to. And I, when I think about hope, and you're talking about church music, I, one of the things I think is there's very few. Uh, uh, people that I have listened to that express more f- more themes of faith and hope than Leonard Cohen, who just died. I mean, his his music uh, and the biblical themes, the way he absolutely uh, the way and and his poetry. I mean, the the man was brilliant right. and uh, and had a way of uh, and, and 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 I think that one of the power what makes it really hopeful for me, and this is this is you know maybe my own unique little quirk about about life and death. But, um, if, 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 if you don't take seriously the dark side of life, um, then when you talk to me about light, it feels frivolous and irrelevant. But if you, but if you've, uh, you know, acknowledged that life is hard, I mean, that, uh, you know, human experience is full of amazing positives as well as very, very challenging negatives. And, and, and if you're going to, if you're going to, touch me at a real level with a piece of art, it's got to engage all of that. It's got to be honest about the real challenges and difficulties. I mean, one of my favorite songs right now is called river of love by, uh, by T-bone Burnett. And, um, and I hear that song and I think, Oh my God, it's so dark and sad. And yet because it's dark and sad, uh, it feels honest. And out of that, it affirms this core value that love is flowing through all of life. It touches you, uh, even in your most broken and humble and frail of experiences, uh, and guide you to a more complete and whole experience. So yeah, hope, hope doesn't, to me, doesn't come by being, um, cheerful and forceful and positive. You know, I, I, I almost, I almost want to, you know, push back against that, you know, power of positive thinking because, well, frankly, it doesn't fit my normal way of being. I just, I'm not one of those people. Um, but Leonard Cohen, as an example, and, and I think all the real artists that matter, and you, you mentioned Dylan earlier, and, and certainly uh, Mark Hurd and other songwriters that have, have left an indelible mark on um, people of faith, um, a lot of the, the best things that they have written have come out of real painful experiences, things experiences of loss and disappointment and and because they've uh, been able to sing through that dark moment of god's goodness and love uh it's 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 a very realistic and and accessible approach that is ultimately yes hopeful and uh affirming and um to me you can't have you can't have the light without acknowledging the dark yeah and 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 cohen does that all the time in fact the new record uh, that he wrote just before he died. It's, uh, you know, you want it darker? <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll make it darker. Yeah. Kill the flame. And, you know, you mentioned that those guys you just mentioned, uh, their message was so powerful that it would overcome. I mean, Cohen particularly had some interesting choices in production from time to time. 
but his right. message was so powerful that you, you weren't thinking about, wow, that's kind of a weird background singer. That's kind of cheesy production on this particular song. You were thinking, man, that is a powerful message and it resonates. Right. Exactly. And, and, uh, and, you know, I mean, the, the, he's unique. I mean, that, that, that's the thing I, I find most interesting. I, I want to listen to something that doesn't sound like everything else. Um, you know, I, when I, you know, even, even when I listen to a folk singer, uh, you know, I know that there's a million folk singers in the world right now. And uh, practically everybody that knows three chords on the guitar, uh, thinks they're a folk singer. Um, but, um, but the, uh, you know, just, you know, but just, just to name three different folk singers, um, uh, I know that I'm going to hear something very, very profoundly different from Peter Case. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to hear from T-Bone Burnett. Then I'm going to hear from, uh, and, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, it could be anybody. Um, the ones that really are compelling to me are the ones who have a, a very uh, mature handle on, on life as a whole. And then they have the musical and the lyrical vocabulary to communicate that. And that's why Cohen was a genius. The man was a true poet. I mean, there was uh, no doubt about that. And, um, and, and, and when I listen to a Peter Kay song, um, you know, I'm, I'm very aware that he's a singer songwriter with a capacity to uh, engage a moment with fresh insight. And it's going to come through the lyric as well as, um, as well as in the guitar playing and in the, uh, and the intonation of his voice and the emotion that's, that's, that's communicated there. Um, and that's true across the board. I mean, when, when an artist is musically focused and, and, uh, relevant, uh, and they're speaking out of their, uh, human depth, uh, there's something there to connect with. And I find that that's kind of what I find lacking in some of the more, um, commercial Christian music that I've heard of late. Um, although there are exceptions, you know, I saw Switchfoot and, uh, Reliant K the other, the other week. And, uh, and I have to say, you know, I, I was really struck by the quality and integrity and intensity of some of their musical expressions. So it can be done. It can be done. But, um, but, um, often, you know, those are both artists now that are producing their records independent of record labels. They don't have to please a, a record label. They, they go directly directly to their fans, either through a Kickstarter campaign or through, a, um, you know, sales primarily through their own websites and their own um, a little in, inner companies. Uh, people who may not have read some of your recent stuff, you 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 cover a very wide spectrum of music in your reviews and in your, uh, and I think you just did one on a concert. What is it in Cincinnati that you covered a rap concert? Uh, oh uh yeah prophets in, in, of rage yeah 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 um yeah that was rage against the machine guys were out with uh two members of public enemy and uh the vocalist from cypress hill and uh yeah it was uh, a <laughs> it was a, a very progressive very very out there kind of uh hip-hop and and metal uh yeah very it was pretty much a protest concert but yeah it was a it was a lot of fun but you you enjoy writing about all music. I mean, you have this broad spectrum in your in your musical palette. Um, who who are some of the other uh, people you like to listen to? Well, when it's just listening, you know, I mean, it really depends on the mood. But right. um, I'm a huge fan of uh, some artists that are probably a little less well known. Um, 
Uh, I'm a big Bruce. Uh, most recently, I've been listening to Bruce Coburn. I've been going back to some of his older CDs and listening. He's a Canadian artist who's mm. uh, folk, but has had periods where he did rock and blues and and um, uh, some pretty progressive jazz leaning kinds of things. And he's he's a fabulous uh, guitar player. Um, uh, the most recent rock and roll thing that I've listened to that I really, really, really enjoyed was the new Alejandro Escovedo record. Um, he's a guy who's been around for 30 or 40 years and uh, uh, has written some wonderful, wonderful things. But again, uh, it's very much rooted in this uh, deep authenticity. Uh, there's a little bit of Lou Reed running around through Alejandro's music, and there's um, uh, certainly some... Uh, some glam rock. He plays, uh, he plays songs that feel a little bit like mop a hoople some of the time. And, uh, um, uh, you know, this last year I took my, uh, my young son, who's uh, just 19. Uh, we went out and saw some blues. We saw a buddy guy perform, um, because I wanted him to see buddy and cause buddy's really the last of those old, old blues players, um, who's, you know, still alive and well. So, uh, you know, it was important to me that he get a chance to see one of those old guys because BB's gone and, you know, a lot of the other, a lot of the other greats have died. And, and there's just only so many of those, those, uh, players in their late seventies or eighties, uh, who are still around that are, uh, performing in a way that you can still get a sense for that, what made them great back in the day. So, yeah, I listen to music all over the musical spectrum. Um, uh, but that's part of what makes it uh, exciting and interesting. My, my personal listening taste, I lean pretty strongly toward alternative rock. Uh, you know, I'm a huge Wilco fan and, uh, and, uh, in the Christian music industry, I'm still fans of those bands that I mentioned early on. I'm mm. still fans of the choir and the lost dogs and the 77s. Uh, I just wrote a piece, uh, that's not yet published. Um, with Kerosene Halo, which is uh, Gary Dougherty from the choir and Mike Rowe from the 77s. That'll be published on their website probably in a week or two. Great. Did, when you saw Buddy Guy, was Johnny Lang opening for him? Oh, yeah, yeah, Buddy. Uh, yeah. yeah, Buddy. Uh, and I think Buddy kind of took uh, Johnny Lang under his wing. I think about he did. I saw that tour, ago. too. And Johnny Lang's a pretty spectacular guitar player as well. <laughs> right, right. And, and he... And he he put out a couple albums on a Christian label at yep. some point, and uh, and there was a strong uh, Christian flavor to his set, um, which is, um, you know, I leaned over to my son and I said, "Can you tell this guy has been hanging out with the people who make contemporary Christian music?" And <laughs> he just laughed. Um, I, I raised my kids to be a little cynical, so what, yeah. what, what can you do? Me and you both. I heard a little bit of Prince and Johnny Lang too, and I was I was sort of surprised because we had seen him before years earlier. I heard a little of the Prince influence and in some of the stuff he was doing. Well, I'll tell you, well, you, you, any, anybody who's not influenced by Prince uh, <laughs> isn't, isn't paying attention because right. uh, Prince was Prince was masterful. He was just brilliant. You mentioned Bruce Coburn, a longtime Bruce Coburn fan. Um, seen him a couple times, but it's been a long time. But what what do you think of his – I was going to kind of lead this into the next thing. Overall, what is your feeling of holiday music, and what do you think of Bruce's Christmas album? Oh, I love that. You know, yeah. I, I, you know, the funny thing is he sings flat half the time. Mm-hmm. So. It's all right. It works on that album for him. I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's you know, it's one of those, uh, it's kind of like uh, people would, uh, you know, it's kind of like Neil Young and, and uh, Bob Dylan with Bruce, with Bruce Coburn when his voice isn't quite 
on the on the voice, you know, on the on the note where in the key that he's supposed to be singing in. It's always a little little struggling, but a little difficult. Um, yeah, yeah. I, when it comes to holiday music, I'm a real fan of authenticity, and um, you know, I, I want to get away from the shellacky yeah. uh, Hallmark uh, music production kind of mentality. So yeah, the Bruce Coburn record is a favorite. Um, I really like uh, some records by Over the Rhine. They've made some beautiful Christmas records. But again, that's that cross between darkness and light. You know, there there's light there, but it's 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 made more it's made more relevant by the darkness that it's not afraid of. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't turn its back on the real life experience and humanity at the heart of um, of the endeavor. Um, so Over the Rhine record is they've got a couple of good real nice Christmas records. Um, the Bruce Coburn record I'm a real fan of. Uh, the guys from uh, the choir uh, did a couple of great uh, Christmas records. One is called Noel. I think that's out of print, but um, that Noel record is brilliant because it's got um, a, a lot of the early Christian alternative artists on it doing um, nice pieces together. It's, it's, it's quite a treat. Hmm. Well, I thought uh, several things struck me on, on Bruce's album when, when it came out. I was, I heard about it and, and I've, I kind of collect holiday music. I'm like, yeah, I like the older stuff, the uh, even some of the stuff that's, you know, like Louis Armstrong, um, some of those things. But uh, his cover of uh, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear is one of the most powerful Christmas records I think anybody ever recorded. And his, yeah. his voice uh, you know, you know what's another, And another one that, that I just listen to every year is is the one by the Blind Boys of Alabama. Yeah. Um, and they have got guests, you know, like Richard Thompson and Chrissy Hind and uh, – you know, a bunch of other people sitting in with them, but, um, oh, and they do a Tom Waits song, which is just hilarious. Um, but yeah, there are some wonderful rootsy, uh, Christmas records that I just, uh, listen to every year just because, um, you know, it's, it's unlike all the stuff you'd normally hear in the, you know, the radio stations that play Christmas carols over and over and over again. Mm. And usually it's the same 12 songs by the same 12 artists over (laughs) just on repeat. But, um, but yeah, yeah, there's some wonderful holiday music out there. I've got a friend who's uh, executive director of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, and he said that everybody every year is trying to get that holy grail of the next Christmas song because they know they can retire if they can just write one popular Christmas <laughs> song. You know? Yeah, all you need is 35 people to cover about that's right, 35 and you're albums. Done. And, um, yeah. As a pastor, how does your your musical uh, you know passion affect your your pastoral uh, duties and passion? Well, I'm not sure it's a, there's a direct correlation. Um, I have to say that, um, that I have a, a, a good ear for music and that probably, uh, gives me a good ear for the human condition wherever I experience it. Um, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, when I'm watching, uh, even popular television shows or even watching the news or anything, I'm always listening for that phrase or uh, comment that cuts deeper, that cuts to the, the heart of the human experience that, that will help, um, help when I'm preaching a sermon or when I'm sitting in a pastoral visit to, to connect with the people I'm ministering with and for and to. Um, so I'm not sure there's a direct correlation. I mean, when I was, when I was uh, for 10 years working with a, a contemporary music band that was, um, pretty uh unsure of what was 
appropriate in church or not in church. You know, they they all had music that they loved, but most of them weren't uh, church musicians. They weren't trained theologians. They weren't. Uh, so, you know, so they would always bring me a song and say, uh, you know, that Jonah Osborne song about um, what if God were one of us? Is that is that a song we can do? And I'd say, sure, let's do that song, because to me, that is a song about the incarnation. Yeah, let's let's do that song. Um, but, you know, but, but in my current ministry where I my my music, my my music staff is uh, pretty much in the traditional vein of organ and piano and chancel choir and bell choir. Um, the music overlap isn't so obvious, uh, but again, it, it, it has, it has trained my ear to be listening for that phrase, that, um, poetic moment, that, uh, communication that, um, that speaks to the heart of the human condition where the gospel becomes relevant and meaningful and purposeful. So, yeah, um, I think it makes a difference, but, um, it certainly affected my training, but not necessarily in an obvious way. I think you're the first, uh, I mean, true week-to-week pastor of, of a local congregation where you serve that I've had on Thinking God podcast. Um, what what do you see as the core of the gospel? Has it changed? I mean, how do you express the core of the gospel message? Well, um, I've rooted deeply in the Jesus we encounter in the gospels. Um, and, and what I try to tell people routinely and awaken them to and and speak to uh, is how radically inclusive um, Jesus's love is. I mean, when Jesus embraces a Samaritan, when Jesus uh, stops to speak to a woman, when Jesus uh, gets down on one knee and says, let the children come to me, um, he's stepping outside the, the cultural norms of his day to embrace people who are viewed as the other, you know, viewed as uh, insignificant, unimportant. And when Jesus takes time for them, uh, it's, 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 it's God's amazing love for all people. Uh, when Jesus touches a leper, uh, puts his hands on the face of a blind man, when Jesus um, uh, feeds those who are hungry, um, what we experience there is is a compelling embodiment of what what it means to be loved by God and for God and and, and for God there are no boundaries. God's love pours over uh, racial boundaries, uh, gender boundaries, pours over national boundaries and cultural boundaries and language boundaries. That love uh, reaches uh, into the very depths of human experience and pulls people up to where they are valued and, and, and become children of God. They, they, they may have awoke, awoken that day, a sick, broken hearted, lonely, sad woman. Um, but having experienced redemption in the presence of Jesus, she's now part of a community where she's valued and loved. And, and that's a, a radical message. That's a, that's a, a, a wake-up call to churches um, who have ignored the marginalized. Uh, it's, a, it's a call to hear uh, that God's love is available to every human, no matter what their experience, no matter what their disappointments and frustrations. Um, we, have the, we have the ability to love them because Jesus has showed us how. 
And to that, me, that's the heart of it. That's awesome. And to, to me, uh, the other question I ask all my guests, who is Jesus? You keep saying Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, when I, when I uh, you know, when I open the Gospels, I encounter uh, a man uh, alive in his own world and times. You know, we're talking about 2,000 years ago in Palestine. We're talking about a brown-skinned man who came out of the backwoods in Nazareth, was, you know, uh, in the middle of nowhere. Um, uh, And and, uh, and we we know from reading the Gospels that Jesus had been schooled in in the Hebrew tradition. He was Jewish uh, and and at core understood the, the Torah, and it had embodied the Torah in a powerful way. Uh, it's clear to me that if I listen to Jesus's words uh, in Matthew, uh, primarily uh, in Matthew five around the around the the uh, Beatitudes, uh, that Jesus is uh, someone who was um, had clearly studied Isaiah and and understood the the, the message of God through Isaiah. Uh, he had embodied that and impersonalized and personalized that he. Uh, he understood that to be faithful to God was to embody love, and um, and that's what we mean when we talk about how Jesus was obedient unto death, is that um, he was able to show love to uh, uh, humanity in, in a powerful way. And and I think Jesus' uh, Jesus's earliest followers were called people of the way. And, and what I think that meant is that the earliest Christians were people who who— uh, tried to focus their lives and live their lives as Jesus taught them to live. And, um, and what Jesus embodied was, uh, a community of love and acceptance, um, that love, uh, renewing, uh, people and, uh, uh, in, in such a way as he empowered them with the, with the transforming reality of, of God's presence. Um, and that, that is a liberating, uh, force in the world. Um, to me, that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the embodiment of the, or the human face of God. The, um, the best example we have of how God would act if God was walking on earth. I, I never get tired of hearing people talk about, the, you know, their expressions of Christ and Jesus. It's just amazing. Oh, you got any plans for a book or anything next that people can look for? You got what? anything? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I've uh, always toured with the idea of a book, and it just seems like uh, every idea that I've had, somebody's already uh, written it, and uh, and there's no really you know need for me to write it. Uh, some of my favorite authors, uh, I try to read uh, on a regular basis, uh, are doing things that you know are ideas that cross my mind, and I've had. Uh, you know, and I read their books. I have these aha moments. Well, like I could have written that. I could, <laughs> but um, who are some of those so people? Who are some of those people you're mentioning there? Well, uh, Barbara Brown Taylor is is a favorite of mine. Um, uh, there's a wonderful new book by a minister in the United Church of Christ, which is my denomination. Her name is Lillian Daniel, and she just wrote a book uh, where she says, "I'm tired of defending a church I don't that that I don't belong to." Uh, and, and she's basically saying that she's part of a progressive, loving, welcoming, peace and justice oriented church. And she's tired of defending the more conservative religious, you know, uh, religious right people who are, you know, are the most vocal voices of the Christian faith these days. Uh, and I won't name any names, but uh, uh, people that have 
made the gospel seem more political than it is uh, practical and personal. Um, and uh, she's, you know, it's, her book is really good. I, I like it. Uh, it really does come out of the mainline Protestant experience, and that's the experience of faith that I'm most at home in. So uh, I like her book. Um, I read a lot of uh, Marcus Borg and uh, Dominic Crossan and uh, those kinds of mm-hmm. theologians. Um, in the Old Testament uh, studies, my my uh, mentor there is uh, Walter Brueggemann. He's written mm-hmm. so many books that I've <laughs> I've probably only read half of his books, but uh, but that's probably thirty. So <laughs> um, <laughs> his name keeps coming. Um, yeah, yeah. He he's well. He's, I'm grateful that he's still alive and still speaking and. Uh, you know he's in his 80s, but he's still uh, he's still out there. Uh, well, he puts out a book every year for Christ's sake. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I'm yeah. I, there there are lots of folk writing good books, and I I read them. And uh, someday maybe if I uh, if I have the time, uh, I find that writing a sermon a week and uh, uh, maintaining my ministry within my congregation and doing a Bible study on Monday nights and and writing a book, uh, a uh, newsletter article every every month, and uh, a few record reviews here and there, uh, doesn't leave me a lot of time to write something specifically uh, for print. Uh, and also, I'm just not sure that I have a book that you know people would want to read. So <laughs> uh, I have a very pragmatic sense of. Uh, of, of prioritization. I only have so much time and I'm, uh, you know, sitting down to write something that I'm not sure anybody else would want to read. is not, not really appealing to me. And then amazing as we get older, how much we start thinking about that time thing, you know, 25 years ago, th- that wasn't really on my agenda. That wasn't really one of my currencies. And now time is my main currency. Well, it never occurred to me that I was going to get old or that I was going <laughs> to die. Uh, but, uh, two years ago I was diagnosed with cancer. So, um, I'm I'm in treatment and uh and uh I I have the regular reminder every time I go in for a treatment that um that life is uh is short and uh it's a treasure to uh to never uh, take for granted. So yeah, I uh I you know like it like everyone else uh, who's getting older, uh you start to see that there's only so much sand in the top half of that uh <laughs> of that uh uh, sand, a sand clock, and uh, you, you're going to have to eventually deal with the fact that there's no more grains left. So uh, you want to use the grains you have left uh, as productively and as meaningfully and as uh, as lovingly as you're able to. If somebody is listening to this, Brian, and wants to read some of your reviews and stuff, what's the best place to look? Or is it, I mean, Facebook? I mean, oh, my I gosh. Well, uh, the the only the only reviews I'm writing currently are being published on a, a website called the Fire Note. Okay. The Fire Note, the um, and that's they, there's a Facebook page for that. Um, my old stuff, uh, I guess, probably uh, a lot of it's probably out of print. Um, I know the Post Dispatch uh, isn't doesn't have all their music stuff archived and online, so. A lot of stuff I wrote for the Post-Dispatch and for the Riverfront Times. Um, probably the only copies that still exist are folded up and in a in a plastic container somewhere in my attic. Um, um, the Harvest Rock Syndicate stuff I wrote uh, way back in the day about Christian rock, uh, a lot of that stuff is still being read because people on Facebook will 
will friend me and uh, tell me that they've read that stuff. So I know it's still floating around out there, but it's not available online. It's not, um, it's not archived there. And I'm not sure how much of my CCM stuff is archived online either. Um, so I, I guess if you Googled my name, you would find access to some stuff, probably things that uh, you're not interested in, you know, like my latest <laughs> political rambling but um <laughs> but uh for the music stuff that i'm currently writing the, the fire note is the best place well i'm i share that uh, i'm aware of the the same general age group and much of the stuff i wrote is if it's in a library somewhere in one of those paper bound things maybe but uh you know we, we, we were pre now everything anybody even dreams about they just read into siri and it writes it down and puts it on the internet and it's there forever <laughs> stuff we right well that, yeah well, actually that's, doing that's work <laughs> well, it's kind of like when you said write a book, you know, the the problem with, with publishing at this point, uh, you know, is, is, is that everybody who has an opinion has a blog yeah. and, and, and it's the equalization and nobody's, um, nobody, very few people celebrate, um, uh, uh, critical excellence. Very few people, ex, uh, celebrate, um, uh, educated depth. Uh, every opinion is equal, right? You know, mm-hmm. I liked it. I didn't like it is considered a review these days. Um, <laughs> whereas that's not my opinion. My opinion is everything has a history. Uh, there's a, there's a, a huge musical, uh, backlog of material that most artists are drawing on. And if you ought to, you ought to, if you're a writer, you ought to be able to connect some of those dots and help people see why this might matter or might not matter or might might be the best thing since warm bread, even though nobody's ever heard of it, you know, uh, like the, the latest Alejandro Escovedo record. But, um, uh, well, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, we live in a world where, uh, uh, you know, words are a dime a dozen. So, so there aren't many, there aren't many dimes worth earning, uh, as a writer. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I, I watched the, more editors. The fact that I had a, well, I said the fact that I had a heyday when there was actually interest in written word uh, means I was uh, probably ahead of the curve. Yeah, we'll be uh, in a museum one day, maybe. I, I watched all my editors resign. Well, like I said, I, I value my time more than anything, but I really feel like that this was an hour well spent. I really enjoyed our conversation, Brian. Appreciate you taking well, thank time. Thank you. No, I'm happy to do it. And, Wish uh, you well, Greg. Look forward to reading your stuff. Wish you well as well, man. Have, have a good one. It's always good to talk to a pastor who is out there. Um, doing the day-to-day ministry of the church who also sees the bigger picture and who finds hope and wisdom and music um, from whatever the source. So I enjoy talking to Brian today. Next week, I'll be talking to star of stage and screen, uh, author. You've probably seen her on television and movies. She's and you may have read her book, and she's had more than one angry conversation with God. Susan Isaacs will join me right here on the Thinking God podcast, and we know that's going to be fun. Got you through a cloudy day When the stars ain't shining bright You feel like you've lost your way When the candle